Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. It's good to be with you. If you're visiting today, after the service, I'd love to meet you. I'll be hanging out in the back there. If you can come up and grab me just to say hello, I'd love to uh, get to know you at least for a little bit today. It's good to be with you. Uh, We are in a series on the gospel according to Mark, the way that Mark tells the story of Jesus fulfilling the story of Israel and bringing good news to bear in this world. So Mark has an interesting way of doing it. Each of the gospel writers do. And we've been tracing it. Today, we come to this question, and it's a question uh, that I'll ask now and invite you to sort of ponder, and then I want to talk a little bit about it before we get into the Markan text. And that question is, at what point would you say, or, or upon what basis would you say, boy, that is really growing? Or, wow, look at how well that is expanding. What is the way that we make that call? What are the, the, the criteria that we would use to make that judgment? And then perhaps an attendant question would be something like, uh, how do you achieve that kind of growth? How do you achieve that expansion, okay? Well, I want to start in the Old Testament, and this has very little to do with Mark, but it's interesting, and it's a parable. So we're in uh, these two sermons last week and this week are really looking at the kingdom parables that Jesus is giving, but I want to roll way back into the Old Testament uh, to right after the time of Gideon and read a parable out of the book of Judges with you. So if you would think back with me, this this is way back now, ancient Israel, and you have a famous military leader and judge, name is Gideon. And Gideon spearheads this massive campaign against the Midianites, the neighbors, and they they were the kind of neighbors that you would prefer to have a very tall fence between you and them, okay? They weren't nice. They would frequently, each year, they would come and steal many of their crops. They would bring their own herds in to graze on Israel's land. You know, not very neighborly. And so Gideon spearheads this campaign, and they sweep through, and they are successful in ousting these dudes. Okay, so Gideon is hailed as a hero. He's a great guy. He has lots of children. And then he passes away, and one of his children, Abimelech, is a pretty gnarly dude. He is not a good fella. He's not friendly. (laughs) Uh, Abimelech gets it in his head that he wants to be in charge and, and sees to it that his 70 siblings are murdered. That's a good way to stay in power. Abimelech has them all killed, except for one. And the Bible tells us that he had a very good hiding place, Jotham. So Jotham is the one boy who escapes this slaughter, and this is going to be Jotham's parable. So you have the scenario where Abimelech, he wants to lead all of the people into worshiping Baal, not Yahweh. And Jotham is not stoked about that, but Abimelech has been very uh, successful so far. And so Jotham, the survivor of the sibling murder, if you will, comes to the table, and I kind of imagine him getting up in front of the people, and he says, guys, listen to me. 
Listen to what I'm saying. That's not unlike Jesus before he gave a parable saying, listen, pay attention. And here's what Jotham says. This is in Judges 9, chapter, uh, or chapter 9, verse 8. He says, listen to me so that God will listen to you. And then he gives this parable, which is going to cue them in to how to, well, I won't say it. Let's just read it. Verse 8. Here's the parable. The trees, he said, were determined to go out and choose a king for themselves. So they said to the olive tree, hey, olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree said to them, I'm not going to stop producing my oil, which is used to honor gods and men, just to sway above the other trees. Okay, so the olive tree says, no, that's my impression of an olive tree. I know it's pretty awesome. Then the trees said to the fig tree, the olive tree is out, so let's go talk to the fig tree. The trees said to the fig tree, why don't you come and be our king? And the fig tree says, no. He says, am I going to stop producing my sweet figs, my excellent fruit, just to sway above the other trees? So he's out too. So then the trees said to the grapevine, why don't you come and be our king? But the grapevine said back to them, I'm not going to stop producing my wine, which makes gods and men happy, so happy, just so that I can sway above the other trees. All right, so three strikes now, you'd normally be out, but we have one more shot. So the trees all go, it says all the trees, and I take that to mean the ones who had said no to the kingly throne so far. All the trees go now to the thorn bush, and they say... Why don't you come and be our king, Thornbush? And the Thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to choose me as your king, then come along. Find safety under my branches. Otherwise, may fire blaze from the Thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Woo, you say. That's a little bit of Old Testament trash talking right there, you know. <laughs> you get, on, get on board with me or it's over for you, okay? That was, that was Jotham using a parable to invite his people to understand something. And you might say, you might say he's giving a little bit of a pep talk, something like an inauguration address maybe. And so this, uh, this vision, the way that he understood growth to happen. It was a vision, if you kind of can take that terse language, but it's punchy. It's a vision that sees growth or retaking what he wants to as something that's fueled primarily by raw ambition and then even violence and power. He sees it as a revolution against the oppressor. Let the fires blaze on. We must fight the evil. Okay, so he, you can imagine him kind of rallying the troops and saying, guys, we can't just let this stand. If we want to see the righteousness come back, if we want to grow and see the true people of God expand in this world that Abimelech has created, we've got to retake the ground. We've got to retake the land. We've got to retake the nation that he has stolen and Jotham tapped into an innate instinct that we have that all human beings operate with. We know how nations grow. We know how they wither and perish as well. We get it. So what he's asking them to do, it's not wrong, it's not stupid, it's not unwise. That's how you have to grow. 
We can achieve successful growth if we have strong ambition, if we're innovative and creative enough, certainly if we start a movement that has influence and power. Join the movement, otherwise may fire blaze from the thorn bush and consume you, okay? Power, speed, observable results. This growth is all about a nation and its rightful government. That's the kind of growth he's talking about there. It's rightful government, let's take it back, let's rise up, let's be like the thorn bush. Now that's the government. I want to two other examples of growth. Let's look at Starbucks. Starbucks starts way back, I think it was 71, with three uh, classmates, an English teacher, a history teacher, and a writer, all classmates from the University of San Francisco. They got a buddy named Alfred Pete, and Pete's coffee, and they learn how to roast from their buddy Alfred. I, I wonder what Alfred thinks about that today. Anyway, <laughs> Alfred taught him how to roast coffee 20 years into their business, okay? They had grown from one little shop in Seattle, and it didn't even make coffee in terms of drinking it. They just roasted beans and sold them bulk. Started with one store, 20 years later, they have 140 stores and a market value of $271 million. That's in 20 years of operating. Roll another 25 years from that point, which brings you up to about Thanksgiving of last year. They have 25,000 stores in 72 or 73 different countries in a, in a market value estimated at $79.58 billion. They're the, they're the second largest, I think. I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. The point is, that's an amazing story of growth, isn't it? There are so many ways that we can measure that, see it, look at it, and say, wow, that's awesome. Costco's another one. A guy named Sol Price. Uh, and his son, Robert, they open up a company called Price Club. It's the first kind of warehouse general store like it. In 83, they call it Costco, and by Thanksgiving last year, they have 723 warehouses, nine different countries, worth more than $66 billion. And they're the first company ever in history to go from zero to $3 billion in sales in less than six years. I mean, it is amazing business plan, rapid growth, moving and shaking. And we look at that and we say, wow, this is awesome. And I think we love that. We love things that grow and multiply and expand. I, I have to believe that is something deep in our nature all the way back to God saying, be fruitful and multiply. We just, we, we're encouraged by that, growing, expanding, and living these encourage us, they motivate us, eroding, corroding, deteriorating, decomposing. That's the opposite. It's not very encouraging to us. There's something fulfilling about planting those seeds in a garden, seeing them grow, come to fruition, and then picking those tomatoes and eating them, you know? There's just this fulfilling nature to that kind of activity. So it's, it's, it's this growth that I want to be thinking about. And now let's transition our minds all the way back to the first century when this unknown Jewish man hits the scene. He hits the ground in about 30 AD proclaiming the euangelion or the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying that the kingdom of God 
is not, is not some weird, ethereal, far-off thing. He says, and that is at hand. It has drawn near. It's here. Okay? And he gets a few people pretty excited about this. They want to see that kingdom established. And for centuries, they have waited to see this kingdom grow and grow and grow to expand across the entire world. This would be a desire of God's people. They're tired of the Romans or whoever. They're tired of the way that big power brokers in our world have expanded their power to be oppressive in various ways. They would love to see God come in and take that throne. They want God to take the throne in the world that he made. He's the rightful one to rule. It's not an unreasonable request. So we can't wait for the day when Jesus is finally sworn in as the king over all the world. It'll be a great ceremony, you know? When Jesus is finally established, when God is finally established, I'd like to be at that ceremony. I think I will. When Jesus of Nazareth starts preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, not only are the people stoked, but they also have some reasonable expectations of what this is going to look like and how it will grow. Normal, good people would expect that the kingdom would come with great power. They would expect that this would be a movement of retaking, not unlike Jotham's thornbush parable. Okay, that's what they would have in their mind. It would come with haste. What great, powerful king is going to dilly-dally about and waste time? If it's time to take over the world, then let's do it, you know? What are we wasting time for here? He, the king, like the great military leaders and warriors and judges, all of their examples from old, he would establish and grow his kingdom the way that it has always been done, the way that we're used to things growing, the way we remember things growing. He's going to do it that way, and we get to be a part of that. We get to watch it. But then the most disappointing thing starts to happen. That's really disappointing. It's unsettling. This is great news, and it gets a bunch of press very quickly, and then even more quickly, it sort of seems to flop. Wah, wah, wah. You know? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to grab hold of everybody the way that you would expect it to. People are getting irritated. The message doesn't seem to be connecting. Plenty of people want a lot of stuff from Jesus, healing or things or whatever they want, but far fewer seem to be interested in listening to him, in living with him as though he truly were the king. The plot starts to thicken, and it's not just an annoying confusion. This is a serious problem for Jesus. If the kingdom has everything to do with God's rule, universal rule, then God is starting to look pretty weak sauce right about now, you know? It's not really the kind of thing that we're looking for or expecting. He's the universal God. Hero Israel, the Lord is one. He's the God. There is none other in all the cosmos. He's the one and only true God, powerful above everybody else. They were told, after all, 
The kingdom was at hand. It was literally dawning, but it's, it seems like a very far cry from being universal. Jesus has some explaining to do. And so he does it. And that is what Mark chapter 4 is all about. Jesus giving some explanation to the irritating questions that were certainly in the disciples' head, but well beyond that as well. Jesus does some explaining. With this in mind, uh, a few points of interest sort of grab our attention from that first parable and then from the whole chapter. So here's, here's a couple. Each parable in chapter 4 is said to be about the kingdom of God, but not just about the kingdom of God, about the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. It's Jesus, Jesus has said, uh, he, or the Bible has, the Mark has told us that he came to explain to them the mysterion or the, the secret of the kingdom. And so we're drawn in, we're wondering what he means there, but then we say, well, how is this a secret? He wasn't real secretive when he hit the ground in chapter one and he started proclaiming boldly in public the kingdom of God is at hand and that cues us in. The kingdom itself is no secret. He didn't seem to be keeping it a secret, but it's, it's, it's beginnings and how it grows. Those seem to be the focus of these parables. How it grows, in whom it takes root, how this happens, how it expands. This is where he's honing his disciples' minds to. This is the secret part. Kingdom, not a secret, it's at hand. But how it begins and how it grows, this is what he starts to talk about. Well, how does it begin? How does it begin? Well, it begins with Jesus, we learned last week, who is the word, I think. We certainly get that sense from John and other gospel writers. Jesus is the word himself. But what the parable invites us to see is the sower sowing the word. The word then is the seed. And where does he sow this word? Well, into people. And that first parable taught us that even though Jesus and his word remain the same, so everybody's getting the same word from Jesus. He's not sort of crafting it in different ways for different people. This is the word, but it gets received by people in a very different way. People make all the difference on how the word is received. So I'm reviewing last week here, but if you remember... He gave three sort of ways that it wasn't received well. General inattention. So some are just conditioned to ignore or resist the word that Jesus sows. There's a hardness. The seed just doesn't ever take root. There's superficial enthusiasm. Some can't cope with setbacks. They're excited. They get pumped, but then lack the stamina and cannot stick with their initial enthusiasm. The word doesn't take root there. And then pursuing too many things. Some have just too many things to think about where the word can never actually become a fruitful part of their life. We noted that the main point in that opening parable was that everybody responds to the gospel in different ways. It's not the gospel's fault. It doesn't, it doesn't need extra content. It doesn't need to be edited or updated by us, if you will. It's not that. Jesus is saying, we never have really had a legitimate reason to believe that the good news of God would be universally accepted. So he's dispelling the uh, uh, problem right there. 
As the disciples would say, if this is the universal rule of God, then how, is, how do people reject it so often? In fact, it seems like most people are, and Jesus says, guys, guys, it's always worked like this, and it's okay. This is how it works. So that's Jesus doing some explaining, part one, all right? He's helping his disciples understand that the kingdom does not operate as per usual. It's not something that fits into how you understand everything else working. It's very unusual. Kingdoms may have been created by raw ambition and brute force in the past. The kind that quickly and powerfully drives people to their knees in obedience, whether they're willing or not. But don't expect that this time. This kingdom will grow as the soil participates with the sower. As people become attentive to Jesus, this is the kingdom unusual. And now he's going to preach two more short story parables here to explain the secret of the kingdom and how it grows in particular. And that's what we'll look at now. So we're still in Mark 4, and now I want to pick it up in 26. Verse 26. He also said, so this is a continuation of his answer to the disciples who have said, man, what are you talking about this secret of the kingdom? Help us get this. And he's given some, some good explanations so far now. These are two more ways he explains it. He also said, the kingdom of God is like someone who spreads seed on the ground. He, the sower there, he goes to sleep and he gets up night and day. And the seed sprouts and it grows, though he does not know how. By itself, the soil produces a crop. First the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. And when the grain is ripe, he sends the sickle because the harvest has come. All right. What can we say about this seed? What's the one thing that sort of pops right when you read that parable? Well, the seed is self-sustaining, isn't it? It grows on its own. Notice that the way that you can kind of get into a parable is to sort of say, what about this parable just doesn't make sense? It's just, it's just weird, like a bunch of trees talking and trying to find a tree king. That's well, weird, unless they're ants, I guess. But here, here you kind of look at it and you say, what is the odd thing? Well, something doesn't add up. I mean, we don't have to be farmers to know that from sowing the seed to harvesting is not like the farmer just goes on uh, you know, vacation the whole time. There'd be no farmer who would expect a long bit of time off between sowing and reaping. As though he kind of has absolutely the easiest job ever, <laughs> you know? Just plant it and then whatever, we'll see what happens, you know? We know from farming that he's got to irrigate that seed and cultivate and fertilize it. He's got to protect it from the Midianites, you know? He's got to, he's got to and the deer and the rabbits and the birds. The story's not teaching us that we don't know how to cultivate things or nourish seeds properly. Instead, it's speaking to the mystery about the growth itself, the growth comes, as the Greek says, automate or automatic by its own power. There's a mystery to how a seed grows, isn't there? I mean, we're pretty good at observing it and figuring out when cells divide and do all that kind of thing, but there is a piece of it we can't yet explain. I think that's what Jesus is trying to key in on. By itself, notice the Greek is referring to the ground 
not to the seed. Your translations should say that. I think they all do. It's, this, it's the ground. So by itself, the soil produces a crop. That's interesting. It really adds to the previous parable, which was all about the conditions of the soil, be they nourishing or not. So Jesus is kind of working with the flow of thought here. And in this, in this way, Jesus explains what the kingdom of God is like. It has its own mysterious dynamic. Our strategizing and planning and structuring and all that stuff, it, we cannot, we will not speed or slow the process that God is engaged with. Plant the seed and it is going to grow in a way that is impossible to totally understand. All by itself, according to the principles of growth that look very different from Jotham's parable or Starbucks, or Costco. The principles of growth in those arenas were very different. This is one that Jesus invites you to say, yeah, think about how much you know about exactly how a seed grows, to which we say, I kind of get that, but not totally. He's like, mm-hmm, that's kind of how you want to start thinking about the kingdom of God. It's real different than how we understand other things to grow. Is he saying... Hey guys, don't worry about growth at all. You should just not care about that. It has nothing to do with you. He kind of seems to be saying that, but such a conclusion, I think, would render much of what Jesus teaches and invites us to as just utterly contradictory. As though what he's saying here is, hey guys, don't sweat it. Just do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. I've got this. You know? He's not saying that. Instead, I think he's saying that you should not come to the kingdom of God thinking that it is just business as usual, some kind of normal, usual, understandable kind of society, that it grows in some sort of familiar or understandable way. He's really cautioning against that. Can't see the kind of growth that you want to see? You find yourself there? And I wish that God was reigning more powerfully than he is. What's going on? What's happening here? Is he in charge or not? The Bible says all over the place that he's totally sovereign and totally in charge. I'm not seeing it. You ever feel that way? Don't understand why the kingdom isn't expanding rapidly like Starbucks or Costco? Boy, join the club. <laughs> this club started around 30 AD, you know. We were part of a very long-standing club of believers who say, we totally believe in Jesus. I wish that he was a bit more of a mover and shaker and just got this done so we could be in heaven and avoid all of the suffering and pain that seemed to characterize our day-to-day. -day. What are you doing? But we're part of this club where we're confused with the disciples, and that's okay. Notice, though, as confusing as it might be, there's also a great hope here. Parable 1 didn't have a whole lot of hope. <laughs> it was kind of more, here's a lot of ways that people fail, okay? Here, there's only good soil that he's talking about, and he's talking about real growth. And it invites us to consider a mysterious growth that happens well beyond human control. Man, there is, there is something that brings a lot of peace and hope out of knowing I'm with God, I'm participating with him for sure, but at the end of the day, he is the one who's driving this thing. 
He's the leader. He is in charge. I'm following him, not teaching God what he should do. Like, God, you're pretty far up there. Let me send some reports to you and alter your plan. You know, it's not like that. It's not a call to passiveness. The farmer's going to sleep and getting up night and day doesn't represent inactivity, but it represents a period of waiting. So the parable is not calling us to be passive. The parable is calling us to be patient, to be patient with God and to be at peace with one another. Waiting patiently when, when, when something seems to be wrong, you know? Waiting patiently when nothing seems to be happening. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in creating impatient disciples. I want to adapt a little knock-knock joke right now. Okay. Knock-knock. Impatient disciple. Grow! (laughs) Isn't that good? That's like the cow knock-knock joke. I like that. I feel like that's what he's trying to really register in our hearts and minds. He's saying, this discipleship life that I'm calling you to is not a life of stress and panic and wishing that God would just get his act together. It's not that at all. When preaching the kingdom of God seems to be getting nowhere, impatient disciples can grow disheartened. Man, it's not like it used to be. There used to be so much more kingdom activity. There's gotta be somebody to blame. It's gotta be the leadership. It's gotta be the internet. It's gotta be systemic evil. It's certainly this whole generation. That's why there's no kingdom work that I could, it's our strategy. It's something's wrong. But this kind of judgment and stress is not in Jesus' character whatsoever. He's not worried about whether his truth has what it takes to actually change the world. And he invites us into the same level of confidence. This gospel is legitimate. Your Christianity is rock solid because it's rooted in the Savior. He does feel, Jesus does feel deep emotion, including grief, including anger over the corruption that he sees in the world, how it wrecks people. But I don't really see him with the attitude of what we might see as a a radical activist. There is no anxious or angry white knuckling. You see? Jesus is emotional. He's not this kind of stoic weirdo who's like, everything is fine. It's all okay. I think he really is a normal human being. But he never gets into that place of, oh man, if we don't do this, it's all over. It's much stronger than that. He's a strong leader. He doesn't come across a guy who gets impatient. Who, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to me to be a guy who gets impatient and freaking out over the future, does he? Who worries about evil people who have too much power. He just doesn't worry about it. It's, it I think because he's God, he's like, yeah, you know, welcome to the planet. There's lots of people who are really evil who have way too much power. That's kind of the story, isn't it? But instead, he's more like, yeah, it looks a lot like they have power based on how we judge power and influence. But check this out. Hey, wind and rainstorm, be quiet. And then the storm stops. You know, that's Jesus kind of winking at you like, 
<laughs> you know, that's power, son. Okay? <laughs> Who has the power? I think that's some of what his miracles do. It's great. There is no fear in Christ. The power of his kingdom is unprecedented, and he knows that it will ultimately, in the most unusual way, it will become the ultimate unchallenged power in the universe. There is no fear. He knows it, and we believe it. The mystery of growth is taking its own unstoppable and mysterious course. It's a mystery of growth. The harvest will come in God's time and in God's way. This is a message that many a minister and evangelist needs to hear, says a New Testament scholar named R.T. France. We need to hear it as an antidote to our culture which demands immediate visible results. This is a Christian community and kingdom work, not a football team or a business. And while the parable doesn't condemn football, it doesn't condemn business. It doesn't say that that kind of success measured result driven institution is just wrong, but it does say that this is not that. Okay? All right, so that's the first parable. Let's do the last one. Parable three. The first two parables dealt with your average sort of seed that would grow and become a crop, but here he's going to lead us over to the herb garden. Okay? We're going to the herb garden. Where mustard is maybe grown, if it is grown in the herb garden, it'd be for two reasons, primarily oil and seasoning. Some of you, I hope, will be enjoying some stone ground mustard today on your bratwursts as you root for the Packers. Uh -huh. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. So you were expecting it. No, mustard, okay? So they are, they are, uh, they're, they're this bush that's going to be in the herb garden, and it's useful in some ways. Common mustard plant in the Mediterranean can grow up to about 10 feet tall. That's quite a bush, you know. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big plant, a 10-foot tall mustard seed. And check this out, 700 seeds fit into just a single gram. So you do a little math there. I can't do math. My phone can I did my phone math, and uh, that's about 17,000 seeds per ounce. That's a pretty tiny seed. And here's what Jesus says. He's going to look at that. The mustard seed was proverbial in his day, you know. Man, that, I don't know, whatever. If you had something really small. That car is as little as a mustard seed. They drove a lot of cars in the first century. Anyway, Jesus says this in chapter 4, verse 30. He also asked, so he's asking them a question, to what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can be used to present it? It is like a mustard seed that when grown in the ground, sown in the ground, sorry, when it's sown in the ground, even though it's the smallest of all the seeds in the ground, when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes the greatest of all the garden plants. And it grows large branches so that the wild birds can nest inside its shade. We can see that the main emphasis here is no longer on growth, per se, but it's on the contrast between something very small and something that becomes very formidable, very large. The point is this, the kingdom of God is going to be imperceptible, my friends. Now, I think he's talking very much about his time and his day as he's starting the kingdom in the first century, and it's like, yeah, guys, 
slow down and hold your horses. This, this thing is totally imperceptible right now. Now, it begs some questions for us 2,000 years later because I think the kingdom has widely expanded, and yet there's a principle here that, that warns us against our cultural rejection of small beginnings. If it's something that's just small, a small act of love, a small act of obedience toward God, it's like, no, whatever, who cares? If it's a big movement, if it's a huge campaign and there's 58,000 followers or $78 million or whatever, then it's awesome. There's a principle here that says small beginnings are really important. And there's a principle here that says the kingdom may begin in a very imperceptible way, and that's okay. In fact, it's really good because it's trying to do something different than what a business is trying to do. This is a soul project. This is a human project. It's not a profit project, and it's not a power project, although it is. But it starts with people and Jesus and the soul. I can't quite unravel all that for you. It's a mystery. Don't panic, Jesus is saying. I know you don't see anything awesome yet, but wait for it. It will come. Some of you might hear um, Habakkuk's language there. Wait for it. Wait for it. Seriously, my friends, we need to work on patience and peace, being patient with God and at peace with one another. If we want to see our churches blow up, if we only get excited about rapid, powerful, forcible Starbucks or Costco-style growth, if evangelism is only working when huge stadiums are filled out and thousands of decisions are made at one time, if that's the only way that we see good, fruitful gospel work, then almost all Christian activity in the kingdom of God we will render as not really that important. And it's that small stuff that's the most important. Notice one more thing here. It's printed right in your bulletin. This, this is from Pliny the Elder. I like, I like this quote. It's really good. Pliny the Elder. He was a philosopher back in Jesus' day. He writes about a mustard seed in his lengthy work. It's called Natural History. There's a, there's a bunch of volumes. He wrote a lot about natural history. And here's what he said about mustard. Mustard, with its pungent taste and fiery effect, it grows entirely wild. As though it, was uh, although it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, Pliny says, when it has been sown... It is scarcely possible to get the place free from it. You just can't get rid of it. And the seed, when it germinates, when it falls, it germinates right away. Jesus chooses this plant. He chooses the mustard plant, I think, to curb against very popular expectations in his day. If he was trying to build into us the expectation, you know, the thought that, hey, Hey, Ben, or hey, Central Bible Church, what you guys should be expecting is a, is a vast and popular and noteworthy empire that rules all in a powerful, fast kind of way. He would have probably chose a different picture, almost definitely 
the cedars of Lebanon. In Ezekiel chapter 17, Ezekiel talks about this kind of dwelling place that God will make and birds will come and nest in its branches. Ezekiel is capitalizing on that huge, grandiose nature of God and his place for his people, and he uses the cedars of Lebanon, which would have been a very strong symbol for power, glory, dominance, that kind of thing. But instead, Jesus uses a bush that grows about 10 feet high. It's wild. It's improved by being transplanted. Once it's growing, maybe like bamboo or blackberries, you just can't get it out of your yard. Jesus is helping us break out of the popular culture around us and the mainstream ideas about what is really powerful what is really influential, and what it really means to grow, for real, okay? No, he says, my friends, this kingdom of God operates on a very unusual set of values. If you're going to live well in my life and in my kingdom, you are going to need to be very direct and very intentional about not letting the values and the goals of business and government so cloud your judgment that you become too hard-hearted to see what I'm doing. Just because your neighbor hasn't done what you hope they do yet doesn't mean that there's a fail or a problem. Just because the country isn't coming around the way that you want it to or the church isn't going in the way or direction that you would most value it to doesn't mean there's a problem. Expect the things that I tell you to expect, Jesus says. And they're all recorded in the Gospels. Jesus tells us what to expect in church life. And I'll tell you what, it's not the kind of stuff I see on internet blogs. Don't expect the things that the world around you tells you to expect. Small beginnings are huge. Small steps toward faithfulness are way bigger than you think. When the kingdom of God takes root, it's not going to blow everything up and change you and the city of Portland or the United States in just a couple minutes. It's going to be day-to-day -day life with God and each other for the long haul. Success in this life is founded upon attention to the small things rather than the large things, Booker T. Washington said. I think he was right. Attention to the everyday things nearest to us rather than to things that are remote and uncommon. The kingdom is not going to be revered in this world as a mighty, glorious empire of great power. And we know that already. It's a mustard bush. It's not a cedar of Lebanon, at least the way that Jesus is teaching us here. So let's not try to build it into the kind of empire that satisfies the desires of a dying world. Ben Witherington, another New Testament fellow, writes this. The point then is that the mustard bush, which never ever grows into a tree like the cedar of Lebanon, but rather into an unpleasant bush, is not seen as something desirable. We shouldn't expect that the world would say, yes, the kingdom of God is here. God's people say that. 
but not the world around us. Douglas Oakman says this, it's hard to escape the conclusion that Jesus deliberately likens the rule of God to a weed. Instead, rather than the big grandiose thing, it's going to grow like mustard bushes. It'll be a noxious and intrusive shrub to most folks. And this is the last piece. When, when finally this king calls the many and the various unwanted birds to live with him in that kingdom, might we see the sinners and the tax collectors and the Gentiles, the unclean and the unworthy people. So much of my life, I, I, I looked at God and his people and I said, I am just not ever going to be in that group. That ship has sailed. I have far too damaged my life. I've crossed that point of no return. I just don't belong with God. He would want to have nothing to do with me. This parable invites you into a very different way. Because that, that's, that's just good logic, you know? You totally hose somebody for years on end and flip the bird at them and reject them and even hate them. It makes sense that they would say, yeah, I don't want to be friends with you, <laughs> right? So I'm not thinking about God in some way that's just crazy. It makes sense. But the kingdom doesn't make sense to us. It's a reversal. There's an invite. And it's for people who are broken, who are not the guys that you, the men and women you would expect to be there. The wild birds are welcomed into the, the safety of those branches. Well, that was a real threat in Jesus' day because it challenged the structures. It challenged the systems. It challenged all of the ways that people valued one another. They said, no, there's a, we're opening these doors widely for all. And it really challenged people. It's a threat to us today, I think, as, as well. Do we really trust Jesus when he starts inviting lots of unpleasant people that would never have made our own guest lists to invite. We have lots of kinds of people in whom we would never invite because that's just the way it is. That's just how the world works. It's just how it's done. We like to proclaim a kingdom with the power and the, and the empire of a grand cedar. We get a little irritated when the real kingdom challenges us with something that we regard as unpleasant, like a mustard bush. You see, if Jesus' proclamation really did take root, it would be a rejection of the usual understandings of God's kingdom. Though the dominion appeared small like a seed during Jesus' ministry, withering to Nance, it would inexorably grow into something large and firmly rooted, which some would find shelter in and others would find obnoxious and they would try to root out. That's the kingdom of God. That's part of this mystery. So, men and women, as a community of citizens in this kingdom of God, you and I, let's refuse to be infected with the values and the goals that Jesus didn't care about. Let's just reject them. Let's never be upset with each other for not growing fast enough or not having enough influence or not getting huge results. Instead, we will carry out the good works 
that God has prepared beforehand for us. And we will live at peace with one another. And we will be patient with God. And with Him, we will sow the seed of His gospel throughout all of the lives of the people that we engage with. And He will cause His gospel to grow. And we will participate with Him in the process. That's a beautiful thing. We have reason to be at peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We, uh, I think we used this term last week, like frogs in a kettle. Uh, we, we get to this place sometimes where your word, especially the parables, they challenge us. And I know that these ones in particular can smack us right in the face and say, what are we expecting? And we confess to you this morning Oftentimes, we are impatient with you, and our impatience toward you turns into impatience toward one another. Would you please forgive us? And through your spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to to exude the confidence that we see in you, to take it on, to really firmly trust that our life with you is worth it, that Christianity is true, even if All of the ways we might measure that seem to say it's not. And that our life with you is truly good. Help us to trust you, to be patient with you, and to be at peace with one another. We love you so. Amen.